Hey, podcast listeners. I'm excited to announce the launch of Somli, a direct-to-consumer marketplace for artisan Texas wine. If you're a Texas winery, claim your free winery page today. Soon you'll be able to list all of your wines and club memberships for wine lovers to purchase on Somli.com. If you're a wine consumer like me, search for your favorite local wineries on Somli and give them a great review. Please join me in spreading the word and helping folks discover the Texas wine industry. And follow at Somli.wine on Instagram for the latest updates. And there's still time to enjoy wine and wildflowers in the Hill Country. Texas Hill Country wineries invite you to drink it all in at the 2022 Wine and Wildflower Journey. Right now, through April 22nd, this self-guided tour is your passport to exploring over 40 wineries in Texas Hill Country. As a passport holder, you can visit up to four wineries per day over 23 days, plus receive exclusive discounts on bottle purchases. Buy your digital passport at TexasWineTrail.com and head for the hills now through April 22nd. Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 43. Today, you'll hear my interview with Regan Metter of Southhold Farm and Cellar in Fredericksburg. I'm excited for you to hear this interview. I think it's so informative. You'll hear what's really important to Regan and his thoughts on growth, distribution, winemaking, and vineyard practices. But first, we'll look at how the Texas wine industry is showing up in the media. From upcoming events to resources to help plan a trip to visit wineries, there's plenty to discuss. So whether you're a regular listener or joining in for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. Tickets are now on sale for the Wine and Food Foundation's Toast of Texas on Sunday, June 5th in Bee Cave on the west side of Austin. Listeners of this podcast can use the code SHELLY, that's S-H-E-L-L-Y, and it will give you $10 off of the ticket price. The main event is a sip and stroll type event featuring wine samples from some of the best wineries in Texas. And the VIP event that precedes the main event is where you will find me giving my top four Texas wines of 2022 and leading a panel of the winemakers. We'll be tasting and talking about the wines, of course, but also talking about the growing season, the state of the Texas wine industry, and taking questions from our guests. So please join in on June the 5th. Registration is open now, so I hope that you'll go ahead and get your ticket, and I'll look forward to seeing you there. That's winefoodfoundation.org forward slash events, and it's called Toast of Texas. There's a new app to help you plan your visits to Texas Hill Country. It was created by the folks behind Stonewall Motor Lodge. The Vind can make suggestions for your itinerary based on a quick quiz about your trip timing and interests. You can browse suggestions from the app or take a look at the suggested itineraries from other people in the know. I've got three itineraries up. One keeps it casual. Another is for more upscale options. And one features women-owned businesses. Jeff Cope of Texas Wine Lover has an itinerary of places that are off the beaten path. Smollier Andre Boada has a plan for your elevated food and wine tastings. The app is free and you can download it from the app store. Again, the name is The Vind, V-I-N-D. The website onlyinyourstate.com recently featured a unique place to camp overnight, and it's none other than 4R Ranch Vineyard and Winery in the small north Texas town of Munster. 4R Ranch Vineyards has a tent and RV campsite with a restroom and shower facility. But if you don't want to camp, there's also a home that sleeps eight that you can rent. It's just a beautiful part of the state and how perfect to get to stay overnight on the grounds of a working winery and vineyard. Texas Wine Lover website has an extensive listing of wineries that offer lodging, and it's organized by regions of the state. So maybe you're headed to Santa Fe and want to visit the Hack Wineries Treehouse that you heard mentioned on the last podcast, or you've heard about McPherson Cellars' new Airbnb in Lubbock. There are great options all over the state, so check that out on Texas Wine Lover. It's called Texas Wineries with Lodging. 
And don't shoot the messenger, but there's more news about the dicamba situation in the national press, specifically in Wine Spectator. The article has several quotes from winemaker Ben Calais and grower Kirk Williams, owner of Williams Ranch Vineyard. The article also quotes a 2021 letter to the Environmental Protection Agency from the Texas Wine and Grape Growers Association, or TWIGA. TWIGA wrote the letter to encourage the EPA to revoke the registration that allows farmers to use dicamba products. Former TWIGA President Roxanne Myers said in the letter, This lawsuit hopes to reveal the demonstrable damage caused by the use of dicamba-based products, not only on the quality of grape production, but ultimately how it impacts our final product, Texas wine, and ultimately the Texas wine consumers. The long-term impacts have yet to be revealed, but no doubt it will be costly to grape growers, winemakers, and our consumers. No word on when the court might schedule a hearing on this case. Well, y'all know I'm a proud volunteer for the Texom Awards, formerly known as Texom International Wine Awards. Since the awards categories now include mead, cider, spirits, and sake, it's now just called Texom Awards. Anyway, entries are being accepted now, and you'll get the best rate if you enter now through April 24th. I know everyone's hyper-focused on the medals from these competitions, but this competition is unique in that it gives sommeliers from around the country who are part of the sommelier retreat access to taste these great Texas wines. And there are additional opportunities for wines that place during the sommelier conference in the fall. With the top judges in the world coming to Texas for this event, we want the best Texas wine entered for them to judge. Visit texom.com and click on the awards to find out how to enter. A new article in Texas Monthly will help you plan your crawfish boil. If you're into mud bugs, they've got two wines that they suggest to pair with your feast. And one is the Farmhouse Vineyard's Boyfriend. They say that it's brimming with floral and tropical fruit aromatics, and it's a pretty little spritzer made from 100% Malvasia Bianca. There's just a hint of sweetness on this semi-dry sparkler, and it adds a perfect counterbalance to spicy fare. The other is a 2021 Lost Straw Cellar Sparkling Pinot Meunier. Of course, it's made from one of the classic grape varieties for Champagne, and this wine shows the potential of a grape typically grown in a cooler climate. The wine is bone dry with a hint of summer strawberries and a zesty lift on the palate. Dallas area listeners, next week you've got a chance to see a Texas wine short documentary film in its Dallas Festival debut. Texas Wine is the title, and the film will premiere at the USA Film Festival in Dallas on Wednesday evening. Tickets are free. I know a lot of us watched the other Texas Wine documentary that appeared last year on YouTube, and you'll see a number of the same faces in this film, but there are additional people interviewed as well. Filmmaker and Texas wine lover Robert Burks is the writer, director, and producer of this film. Not only does he have some interesting interviews to share, but there's also a scripted flashback scene at an old western saloon that's filled with Texas wine-slinging cowboys. When the saloon bartender asks for a drink order, the cowboy replies, Have you got a wine list? The other cowboys, of course, laugh, but by the end, he has them all singing the praises of Texas wine. I noticed that the lead actor bears a striking resemblance to Chuck Tordiglione, but I can't be sure. I also noticed that the cowboys were drinking wine out of farmhouse vineyards etched stemware, and that was fun. There's a version of this film on YouTube. I'm not sure if it's the final cut, but I'll link to it in case you're unable to make it to Dallas on Wednesday night. Find links to all of these stories in the show notes at thisistexaswine.com. And that's the Texas Wine News. My newsletter subscribers get to hear the behind-the-scenes stories of putting out a Texas wine podcast. The newsletter includes my latest wine experiences and some favorite wines that I don't have time to talk about on the show. They also get some fun freebies. Of course, it's all free. This summer, I'm going to be doing quite a bit of traveling and will release new podcasts on a limited basis. But subscribing to the newsletter means you're still in the loop. I'll be sending out regular newsletters that include my favorite travels in Texas and beyond. To sign up for the podcast newsletter, visit thisistexaswine.com, then click Newsletter Sign Up. Now it's time for our interview. Regan and Carrie Metter are co-owners of Southhold Farm and Cellar in Fredericksburg. Regan is from the Houston area. And he and Carrie originally set up a winery in Southhold, New York, a town on the north shore of Long Island. Turns out they were unable to expand what they were doing there because of some city ordinances, and they decided to relocate to Texas wine country. 
They got to Fredericksburg in 2017 and got started building a gorgeous hilltop tasting room and planning for an estate vineyard. I first met Regan in 2018 when he came through Dallas, and he was just here again last month, pouring his newest releases. I appreciate his strong convictions, his often bizarre wine names, and the whole vibe at his tasting room. Here's our interview. A couple of years ago, I wrote, I met you in Dallas at a thing at Veritas, and I wrote that you say that your winemaking approach is to pick at a reasonable time and stay out of the way. Mm Mm-hmm. So how do you stay out of the way? What does that mean to you? I mean, really, I think it goes back to the very beginning of, you know, the season and kind of paying attention to what the season is giving us and using that to guide you as to what kind of wine is going to be made that year. Um, So, you know, if we're, you know, really hot and dry and things are accelerating quickly, then we know our phenolic ripening chances are a lot lower, say, than if it was a cooler year like last year, where things um, were able to hang on the vine for a little bit longer without burning off all of its acidity or, you know, gaining too much in terms of sugar accumulation. So we were able to, to let that phenolic ripening happen at a sort of place. So that right there tells me, okay, this is what I can kind of expect from these wines and let's give them the best chance. And so that means let's pick them and then, and that will inform what we do, how we handle stuff in the cellar, whether or not we leave things on the skins for a little longer, a little shorter. But from there, we, it's all natural yeast fermentations. Like we've never inoculated anything and it's about as simple as it gets. I mean, it goes back to the way that wine's been made for a long time. Um, It's not to say that science doesn't pop in there for us. It helps tell us that we're on the right track and that things are healthy, but we don't use those things in order to create a wine that otherwise wouldn't be possible to make in that season. So, you know, we're not trying to take fruit and say, you know, think, sit here on our, our desk chair and think to ourselves like, uh, you know what, what's really popular right now is big, big, bold reds. Uh, let's, you know, cryo macerate some stuff and do all these other things and fix this and add some more extraction, add some tannin to it, blah, 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 like Frankenstein, this wine. Um, we don't do that. Um, and that's not to say that any of that is necessarily bad for you or, or, or shouldn't be done to, for me, it means that, that you're not getting a clear picture of what we're producing in the field here and, and what kind of wines are being or possible to be, be made here. You know, one of the, I always kind of bring this up. One of the most, important aspects of wine is being able to make something that you can't replicate anywhere else. Um, That's why Burgundy costs as much as it does. That's why all these great wines cost the way that they do is because you can't recreate that. You know, that's value. There's a limited amount that you can get out of those places. And and that's, that's the, the whole thing. If we're in a place where you're, we're trying to, we're coming from a place of, of emulation of trying to make a wine that tastes like a certain thing, then that means you can pretty much do that anywhere. It doesn't matter. You've taken terroir or this idea of place out of the discussion at that point. And what do you really have other than something that tastes like an everywhere wine? And, you know, that to me is not a very long-term proposition you're not going to be around for a long time if you keep down that path because what you're doing isn't really unique to what you know is happening on your ground i'd like to talk about your vineyard sources as well as your estate vineyard Mm -hmm. but maybe you could start with where you're currently sourcing your grapes and talk about what makes those places special uh we have a couple of different spots um we do a little bit of sourcing in the uh, the hill country, 
both in the Lano uplift, which is where you have a lot more granitic sandstone, um, that that red dirt that people know if they go up to uh, whatever it's called, the big boulder. Um, and then, you know, some stuff around here, which is more of that, that limestone caliche clay stuff. And then we also do a fair amount in the high plains with one vineyard um, called the Kubacic, um, Kubacic vineyard, excuse me. Um, and uh, they're a little bit away from the fray of, um, you know, the brownfield um, epicenter, so to speak. Um, we've had, we've worked with it in 2017 and 20 and 21 now, and just really been impressed with the quality of it. And he and Daniel, um, his vineyard manager, um, Daniel Pate have done a great job of, um, really dialing things in and not just accepting, you know, this is how grapes are grown in the high plains as the, the, uh, the end all be all. So like they're one of the few vineyards out there that has a permanent cover crop on the property, um, which I think is very important. And, you know, we dig soil pits and check for things. If, if certain vines aren't doing well or certain varieties, um, nutrition is a very big thing. There's a lot of handwork on these vines. Um, and I think that's, that's really important, you know, and, and the other thing that, you know, is becoming a big thing for me is, you know, are we working with people that are actually living on the property as their vineyard, you know, and like actually in there doing it to me, you know, you get a lot of the different senses of quality. I've done this enough to see people who are living in the midst, their vines are going to do things very differently than people that have to go and travel and check in on things every other week or whatever it might be. Um, so you're much more dialed in. We can trust that their farming practices are are up to our standards because they're living there. You know, they're not going to spray stuff out there just to have it, you know, flying through their house. Um, so in a lot of ways, it's um, for us, it's been about identifying people like him and Dan McLaughlin at, at, at um, Robert Clay Vineyards and Mason. Um and, and people like that, that we can really trust and work with and that are willing to kind of push the ball forward from a viticultural standpoint, you know, there is still so much that we need to figure out here. Um, you know, thankfully, you know, the last, you know, 15, 20 years, we've gotten to the point where just growing grapes is something that everyone can kind of do. We kind of know how to do that now. Now we're getting into the margins of how do you make great wine and what does that mean? It means really focusing on cultural practices in the vineyard, um, figuring out which varieties make sense for those sites. Um, and so the biggest thing for us is identifying people who were willing to kind of keep that ball rolling and, you know, do that. Is hand harvesting imperative for the kind of wines that you want to make? To some degree, yes. In other ways, no. I mean, that's not a. I'm. I'm. I've been open to uh, changing some of that. When we first came here, we were all hand harvested, and we still do most of it um, where we can. Um, with white wines, I find that that little bit of I mean, we're going to destem anyways, and that little bit of skin contact is just enough before we press everything off. Um, and I've seen fruit come off cleaner on some of those uh, machines than what goes through my destemmer. Um, so if we're not using things like whole cluster on it on on certain wines, then then uh, and we're not going to travel too far, or the, even from a stylistic standpoint, um, it makes sense for us to have something pulled off with the machine we will um i think the machines uh i don't think that they have such a huge effect on quality as far as wine goes outside of a few like little things the thing that i always worry about with them and they've gotten a lot better is how 
destructive they can be in the vineyard. And so that's where it's like, you know, you, you know, the newer ones work okay. Um, but you still have to make sure that they're not beating things up too much and that you like your trellising. Is that what you mean? Like the the actual vines and yeah. And the vines and the structure of the vineyard and that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. But, um, you know, I've, I've tried to move away from dogma on, on either side of the wine spectrum of, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that. And all of these, you know, pre-imposed rules, you know, and really want to take a much more common sense approach um, than, and, and look at everything for what it is. So, so there are some things that we do use the machines for, um, but we just as much love to have stuff hand harvested as well. Do you feel like people that come through your tasting room or that you meet here or there understand that you're making decisions, like you said, in just a common sense approach, or do they want to kind of pigeonhole you into being one thing or you don't, you use some sulfite. So maybe you're not natural enough for me. Right. Kind of thing? I mean, everyone wants to put people into a box and that helps humans understand the world. Um, so I get it. And, you know, we definitely get thrown into the, the natural wine world, even though that's never been something that we've um, necessarily put in the forefront as, as a, as a, this is who we are. Um, you know, I don't, I, I, I start to worry whenever I hear people talk in absolutes um, and especially people who aren't in the trenches doing the farming and doing the winemaking um, you know, when you get to that absolutism, then a you've lost room for learning, um, and b you really don't sound any different than the other side of the spectrum that is all about the whatever manipulation we can do. Let's do it, you know. So for me, it really is um, taking a more holistic approach and asking hard questions on all of the different practices and what makes sense and what doesn't. Um, but the ultimate goal is always like, how do we make the best possible wine that we can make? Um, and how do we, you know, take Texas from being good to great? Um, and so, uh, you know, we have to be open to things, um, and discussions and, and, and that, and honestly, you know, yes, the, 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 goal of all of this is to be able to literally go and pluck grapes off the vine and have them roll into the vineyard or into the cellar and create this beautiful wine. And we didn't even do anything in order to get there. But the reality is like, there's still a lot of guidance that needs to happen. Um, And so, you know, we'll get there and that's the goal, but, but not at the cost of, you know, having wine that's serviceable. Yep. That makes sense. Um, I want to talk some about your estate vineyard that mm-hmm. I understand was planted to rootstock for a while. Mm-hmm. And then you had it grafted last year yes. with a whole bunch of different varieties right. and all kind of scattershotted across um, from what it sounds like that they're, you're not quite sure what's where, but um, they're out there and we'll see how it goes. Right. I mean, there's, there's, there's certain varieties um, that we've used across the whole thing. And then some that are specific on different sides of the hill. Um, so yeah, to, to go back to the beginning, it's, uh, roughly 13 acres worth of vines and they're all on, on a pretty steep slope. Um, very steep for, very steep for Texas standards. Um, and the whole purpose behind us picking this spot was for the vineyard um we were looking for using topography in um vine growing um you see it worldwide no matter where you are the best vineyards tend to be on slopes either mountainous slopes or hills or whatnot um and this all has an effect of airflow um whether or not you want direct sun in the southern exposure or you want less sun on a northern exposure like all these things start to 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 play in effect and so for us 
finding something of a northern exposure to get some of that sun off of the vines was important. Being able to dry stuff out, having airflow coming through after rains to dry out canopies was important. And you're at a, a bit of an elevation there compared to a lot of the vineyards in the right, hill right. country. We're, we're, we're taller than Enchanted Rock, actually. Oh, is that um, right? Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're very high and exposed compared to everything else. And um, what was fascinating when we were doing the search for it and when we came across this, uh, this spot, um, one of the first things that I noticed, it was covered in trees. So there, it was supporting quite a bit of vegetation already. Um, and then uh, there was tons of Berlandieri uh, vines, which is one of the main parentage for the rootstock that we used. Um, and what I saw there was a lot of them had fruit still hanging on them, which you don't really see, you know, maybe, you know, Mustang vines along the side of the road. Yeah. You'll see big old clusters of those hanging around, but Berlinieri, I mean, it happens, but they, they really are a little bit particular, um, at least in my experience. And, um, and so seeing that, seeing that they, this, the, the place is already covered in them was kind of like a, well, this, this has to make sense. Um, and so we started off by planting those rootstock um, and we didn't irrigate them for the first two years. Um, and that was, this is all part of like us learning, um, you know, all these other native varieties had made them their way there without the help of irrigation um, and truth be told, the vines did fine without being watered. Um, and so, you know, we've decided through this that if we're going to get into production, that they probably need a little bit of help with all the droughts that we get. Once we start pushing vines to produce and everything, that takes a larger toll. So other than, rather than just expect them to stay alive, we've, we've put in some some irrigation for now. Um, but our well is so small that we really can't do a lot of heavy watering. What's um, the soil like there? It's only about a foot maybe of, of topsoil. In some places it's even less. It's probably like six to four inches. And then you get into that, uh, that really brittle caliche clay. Um, it can get chalky even. Um, and what we found is that for the most part, it holds on to water pretty well, assuming that it's got some cover on top of it. Um, and we haven't been dry for six plus months. Um, so I think that's part of it. I eventually, I, I suspect once these vines get further and further established that we'll use less and less and less water, um, just in my own experience. I mean, I've had to go and move some vines just to make room for things or just stuff got planted in the wrong spot. And the root systems that these have already set without having any supplemental water has been pretty impressive to see. Um, and we've just been cutting them back. So that's all they've been doing is, is really pushing down, pushing deeper into the ground. Um, so in 20 years, what do you hope to have learned and what will the vineyard, vineyard look like at that point? Will you be pulling up things that just don't work? Right, and Right. I think my guess is that it'll be less pulling and more, uh, you know, this vine didn't work or this vine, you know, has really struggled or it's like outrageously exposed or, or, or predisposed for our diseases. Um, and what we'll probably do at that point is the same thing that we just did, which is cut them back down and grab buds from the plant doing well next to it and graft over to that and not really make so much of a decision on which varieties, what we don't have the marks. So there's not a lot of ways that we can, uh, you know, we'll, we'll learn the leaves. Like eventually we'll know what varieties are, which just based on the epilography. Um, but I really do want to take an approach of like, what's happiest here, what's growing well, and then have that start to dictate the wines that we're making. Um, and and what styles um make sense um for for that so the whole thing is 
you know, like I said, I think at this point we're about 45 different varieties um, scattered across all uh, those 13 acres. So 20 years from now, I suspect that certain varieties start to kind of show us where they want to go. And what's going to be interesting to see is if it's a situation where we're, uh, we're, you know, top to bottom uh, different varieties um, versus east to west different varieties. Um, and that's really the reason why we chose this approach is if I were to only plant cab on the west side and maybe the east side, I might miss that it does well on the north side. You know, and same thing with any other varieties. If I just just planting little blocks along the way, I could get something wrong pretty yeah. quickly. And so, you know, you go back and look at the history of wine in places like Alsace, Burgundy, uh, Austria. I mean, pretty much any European wine growing region consisted of uh, uh, field grafted, field blended vineyards. Um, and that's how they ultimately discovered the varieties that worked for them. And there's still some of those vineyards um, that exist that are still the old field blends that they once were. And those are some really magical wines. Um, so we hope that in a few years we'll be getting some interesting field blends from the estate. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean the the I don't know. It's so hard to guess what will come. Um, you know, ideally we make maybe two maximum three wines from the estate. And that's, that's all that we make. It's going to come down to, um, you know, a lot of, of trial and error and blending and, and so on and so forth. Um, but that's fun. And I think really what's interesting about it is that it takes the variety discussion out of the equation and really becomes something of like, what does this place taste like? What, what, what are we getting out of this place rather than I like cab and this tastes like cab. <laughs> so one of my most memorable wine tasting experiences in California was at Ridge Lytton Springs. Right. I don't know if you've been there, but they've got a beautiful vineyard on the estate. They actually have a map of what every single plant is right, right. and, and then they make field blends. And I was just kind of fascinated by that whole process. Right. So no, there's tons, pretty cool. of, tons of those kind of vineyards all over California. I mean, Montebello is another one from Ridge. Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, they're, they're all over the place and it was just how people worked a hundred years ago. You know, there wasn't all this cool. DNA analysis and all the other things that we have now. Um, and as helpful as those are, I think they end up sometimes being blinders to people and, and, and keep from those, uh, keep us from having those discoveries. Yeah. I don't know if such a thing exists, but I think that you should invent an app that has the different grape leaves so that, you know, you don't have to be a student of, <laughs> of anthropography. Right. I think, I mean, I know they have them where you can identify like weeds and other plants. I'm sure we're inches away from, a, you know, a app for ampelography. I don't see why that wouldn't happen. I mean, and it gets, once you start to see things, you'll get to, you kind of start to know what, what's what. Um, but, you know, it's fun. It's fun to look out there and see what's happening already. So you just had a new release of your new wines for the mm -hmm. spring. And mm -hmm. I read in the email announcing those that you sold over 4,500 cases of wine last year. And I, at some point last year, saw an email notice that you were sold out of wine, mm -hmm. which is, a, I guess that's a good problem to have. That means there's great demand for what you're making. Mm -hmm. And we had a little discussion when you were in Dallas about your desire to limit growth. Mm -hmm. So can you just talk about that a little bit? I Presumably mean, you could sell more wine than you're producing. Right. I mean, we're basically getting to the point now where even for this vintage, the stuff that we're already haven't even bottled yet in some cases are already kind of earmarked for places. We made a very conscious decision back when we first started to have uh, distribution be a part of the mix. So, you know, we don't only sell wine from the tasting room. We, uh, we have about, it's, I mean, right now we're probably at 13 different States that we 
actively distribute to. Um, we're about to add at least another four to that this year. Um, and so, you know, for us, you know, it, it's counterintuitive to say we don't want to grow. Um, but I think those choices that you have to make in order to grow mean that you're having to compromise on other things. So, you know, for us to grow, for instance, would mean that we needed to go out and find more fruit. Well, are we going to find growers as good as Dan McLaughlin or CJ Kubechik? Um, I doubt it. I mean, maybe there's, you know, there's a lot of guys that are out there, but they're, you know, currently under contract with other places. Um, but I don't want to just go out and just pick up fruit from anyone and everybody um, and grow just for the sake of growing. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, it just doesn't fit for us. Um, and then, you know, as far as the rest of it goes, like, you know, we could probably sell more wine here. Um, but, there's a dearth of Texas wine in the rest of the country. It all stays in Texas. And I think that's a little bit unfortunate. Um, and so for us to go out there and be the ones that are teaching people what Texas wine is, is kind of both exciting and a little crazy to be honest. Um, but it allows for seeing it in some of the greatest restaurants in the world. And I think that's where a lot of these wines being made here need to be. And unless we put effort behind that, it just all kind of gets disappeared in the state. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's a lot of why we do it. There's a financial choice. I'm sure when you send wine into, into distribution, right. We lose money. Yeah. But it's still important enough to you that you're willing to price it accordingly or what have you so that other people outside of the state are willing to, to try Texas wine, huh? Right. Well, and eventually like it's an investment is the way that I look into it. You know, the money that we're not necessarily making off of those wines that we send out of state. Um, that's, we're putting money away. We're building something much larger, um, looking down, down the, the path and the more demand that we create for these wines and the less that we have, um, is ultimately, I think, a good thing. And that's where we really start to create value um, for for what it is that we're, we're doing here. Um, you know, and, and also, too, it just it's it's from a business standpoint, just being diversified and not playing, you know, the just the wine club game or just the tasting room game or anything like that. You know, it's it's kind of meeting people in a lot of different places and introducing them in a way that makes sense for, you know, what it is that you're doing. Um, you know, that's, that's one of the big things for us. Like we put wines, our distribution partners are very good at putting wines in places that people who are selling them are excited to tell the story of what we're doing. It's not just, is it primarily wine shops, restaurants? It's mostly restaurants. I'd say, um, uh, the, yeah. I mean, I think across the board, it's mostly restaurants. I mean, we definitely show up in some wine shops, some of the nicer little boutique type of places. Um, but restaurants is, is where it is. So, you know, we have stuff getting poured by the glass and, you know, places like Gramercy Tavern and someone's having that glass of wine and going, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And they'll turn around and buy a case off of our website, you know, and it's all a very cyclical thing and it's just really exciting to, to be the one out there, um, you know, telling the story and introducing people to something that they didn't even know existed. I mentioned to you that I've been to South Hold, New York and visited a few wineries there, mm-hmm. but I don't know that I took enough time to understand kind of their winemaking philosophy and so forth. Was it easier to find other people in the industry making wine like you do in New York? than it is in Texas? Because it seems like you're one of just a handful of people who are kind of more, I don't know, I know you don't like titles, but I'll say non-interventionalist, except when absolutely necessary. 
I mean, I think people that is a much older region um, in terms of like operating at a higher level than just like having some some like you know you know hobby vineyards in it. Um, you know, they've been really building and growing for f- over 40 years now over there. And so they were getting to the point that they were getting stuff very dialed in. I'd say 95% of that region is all estate driven as well. So you, you grew your own grapes and made wine from those grapes. It was very little of this negotiant style. Like I just go out and buy grapes and don't own any vineyards or don't do any farming. Um, and so they had that feedback loop for 40 some odd years. And, and there was winemakers there who had been working there for that entire time who knew it backwards and forwards. And like the guys that I worked for, both of them, Davis guys from the seventies and the nineties. And they were some of the simplest winemakers that I've come across. Um, and that I think was a big eye opener for me was, you know, they weren't, they wouldn't go as far as I did with the whole native yeast thing, but like they were pretty simple in what yeast they were using. And it, after that, it was, it was kind of, you know, do what little we had to do to the wine and just kind of keep, keep an eye on things. Um, you didn't see a lot of like the crazy machinery and, and, in latest and greatest winemaking techniques being implemented out there. Um, and so, yeah, in a lot of ways, I think there was a lot more people closer to, I guess, my orbit. Um, I mean, hence that that's where I learned from. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think Texas will get there. You know, it's we're to the point right now where I, I'd say we're where Long Island was probably in the mid '90s, and or even early '90s, and they had a big explosion of excitement. And New York City was kind of woken up and really started accepting them as a as a uh, an actual wine growing reason region. Excuse me, um, but it 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 that went away. You know, and they had to go back. I don't want to say go back to the drawing board, but they had to just keep, you know, hacking away at it. Um, You know, they had some pretty rough vintages in the mid 90s there. And I think that set them back. But once the 2000s rolled around, you know, new crop of new growers came in. And and by 2005 to 2010, the quality just on some little bitty changes and how they were doing some stuff in the vineyard, changing to from spur pruning to cane pruning, which is much more technical in the vineyard. Um, All these little things started to happen. And most of it, I think happened in the vineyard and you see it was a huge jump in, in quality. And, and, and there again, like by 2008, 2007, even, New York city had woken back up to what long Island was doing out there. And so I see the same kind of thing happening here. We're at this point right now where Texas is being kind of recognized within itself in the, in the locality, as far as wine goes, I think we're probably in for a leveling off um, as far as the excitement goes. Um, which means we have to get back to work and get better and make better wine. And then I think they'll down the road, we'll have another, you know, big, you know, wow, the wines have gotten that much better. Um, and that's all just going to come from the hard work. That's the, the, the bummer about wine. You know, we don't, we only get one once a year to perfect things and try new things out. And so it just takes some time. You know, if it was beer making, we'd have it all figured out by now. Yeah. What do you say to critics who say that natural wine is either low acid or has too much volatile acidity or, mm. you know, a mousy character? I mean, I, I, I agree with them. I mean, I faults for me are faults. You know, I, sometimes I find some faults charming and we definitely put stuff in the bottle before that had had 
like maybe a little bit higher VA, we call it go down swinging. It's, it's a line that I think is just really charming and it's weird, funky self, but that's not necessarily what we strive to make. Um, you know, I don't, you know, there's definitely a world out there where faults don't exist for a certain subset of, of the consumer, uh, world. Um, I fall personally where I don't, I don't mind things until they start to overtake the wine. If things are integrated in, if it's a complete wine, if it's got balance, um, and interesting flavors and aromas and count me in. Um, but you know, I don't much care for, uh, chemistry experiments, um, gone bad necessarily. Um, but that's, that's just me. And so we definitely strive to be careful with what we make and, you know, prevent it. And that was a big thing, even this year, um, you know, kind of building the new structure that we have as far as how we look at every lot that we make and grade it and decide whether or not it stays even in the cellar, you know, we're, we're past that point of, you know, being able to take something out of the system and put it through the distillery and have it turn into brandy. Um, if it doesn't meet a certain quality quotient for us, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not good enough to just put something into a bottle anymore. Um, so, you know, that's my personal preference. You know, everybody has their things and some people, you know, like some of that stuff and there is a time and a place I'm, I'm all there for it, but it's not something that, um, you know, I, I do worry about the long-term effects of, of faults and wine and, and them being, I mean, you know, I use this analogy a lot. I look at faults that, take over a wine the same way that I do too much new oak in a wine or over acidifying a wine. Um, when that becomes the thing that I'm tasting and I can't pay attention to anything else then the wine's lost on me. And so, you know, no matter which side of the equation you're on, it's, it's always about balance and, and, and harmonizing. You mentioned beer. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you've got going on? Is that a project outside of Southhold? <laughs> no, I, I know you've got the place in Johnson City. Well, the, so the parlor is just a little tasting room outpost. Um, since we're uh, uh, by appointment only up on the hill, um, we decided to make that the place where if you really wanted to just show up somewhere, or try just check in and try some wine or buy something, then that's where you could go and you didn't have to drive all the way out here. Um you know, that that's what that's largely for now. Um, but on site, we have um, a lot of food driven experiences, which is a fairly new thing in the last year for us. Um, and, uh, you know, it was kind of one of those things I, I get these little larks every once in a while, you know, wine's a slow thing. And so I have to distract myself um, with other things. Um, and so we just bought a, uh, one barrel system and we make two different beers, a light and a dark. Um, uh, and you know, they're basically Kolsch's a light Kolsch and a dark Kolsch essentially. And, and they're only available up here on the Hill. Um, so it's a, it's kind of a nice little Easter egg for guys who've been out, tasting with their wives who might not have uh, been wine people or for folks that have been tasting stuff and feel like drinking beer or whatnot. They're, they're good though. I mean, honestly, I think it's one of the best dark beers in the state of Texas. And do you sell those in cans nope. or only, only on draft. Only in, okay. Yeah. Yep. And then tell me about Paquette because I've had some Paquettes from you that I enjoyed, but you're not doing that anymore. Though, um, Another one of those, like, let's try this experiments. Um, you know, Paquette was fun and it makes sense. I think there's people out there who should continue to do it. Um, for us, really, I think ultimately when I sat down and kind of took stock of everything, 
I didn't, it's like, maybe I'm just a bad businessman. I don't know, but I didn't want, it was becoming popular enough that I didn't want it to overshadow everything else that we were doing. And so we, that's when we decided to, uh, to, you know, finish it off. I mean, there was a few other little things that helped us along that decision, but, uh, I, it was, becoming too much of a distraction. And honestly, we needed the space for wine. And so we didn't really have the space for it unless we went and invested in new tanks. And it's just like, this isn't worth doing that. Um, I'd rather people be excited about what we're here to do. So in 2019, Eric Asimov profiled South Hold in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. Big time coverage, big time. (laughs) One of the things he said is that, well, let me just quote what he said. Southhold seems a picture of contentment, a young family striving to make it its mark in the new world of Texas wine. It will be difficult, groundbreaking work with no clear model for success and no guarantee of achieving it. So I wonder, what does success look like to you? And are there clear models for achieving it? Um, that's actually a really good question. Um, success is going to be driven largely in a long-term kind of view for me. Um, It's, uh, you know, obviously I don't make decisions based on what will maximize profits and sell the most. Uh, But, um, you know, Honestly, success for me is is good enough that I just get to live the rest of my life out here doing this. I mean, I'm lucky enough to be doing thing something that a lot of people plan their retirement around doing. Um, so in some ways, I got to retire early, um, albeit it's a lot more work because I don't have the nest egg that maybe some people in that 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 realm do, but. Uh, you know, I think just to do what we're doing is kind of enough for me, to be honest, you know, there's, there's hope that this, you know, estate stays in our family for generations. You know, I come from an agriculture family out in West Texas, outside of San Angelo, and that ranch has been in our family over 110 years now. Um, and it's been passed down and passed down. And so, you know, I, I understand the importance in that and, and what that means. And so, you know, hopefully that, that gets to happen, but you know, that's all my kids' decisions and their kids' decisions. So, you know, for now I'm just going to be happy, you know, scratching away at what we're doing here and hopefully get wine that we're making into more and more people's hands and see it, you know, flown all over the world. I mean, it's been cool to see bottles pop up in places all over the world. Um, and random, I mean, some of the most random things, I mean, we're, you know, having our wines poured at, at four horsemen and the white house. I mean, who can say (laughs) that, you know, it's, 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 uh, I've already kind of checked a lot of those boxes. Um, as far as those things go. So now it's just how do we make it better and how do we grow it in a very sustainable methodical way? Very cool. Anyone that you want to shout out from your staff? I mean, the whole team, everyone from Adrian, we have a new winemaker in the mix to who I'm excited to get, you know, thrown into the the skillet this this uh harvest and you know the whole team up here um taking care of all the hospitality stuff that we do and obviously you know everyone knows and loves rusty my dad um so he's still up here kicking away um and it's it's fun it's a family very much a family affair you know my in-laws are out here working as well when they can. So I am not complaining one little bit. 
Oh, that's great. I think everyone should go catch a sunset from, from your spot with yeah. a glass of wine in hand. Yeah, and we are doing dinners now, Fridays and Saturdays. It's a set menu, eight-course dinner um, that you can do exactly that. Um, but we we capped that experience at about 10 to 12 people, so tickets are not always easy to get. Where should people connect with you? Um, Instagram and our website, really. I mean, we're... I try to keep up on chronologically showing things that are happening out here in the, in the, the property. Um, I do find that I get so busy that I forget to take pictures now, the, the, the more and more that I have going on. Um, but we, we try to keep people updated through that and then through the newsletter as well. Um, on their on our website, if you just throw your email in, um, We'd send them out about once a quarter or so. Awesome. This is fun. This is fun. Thanks, Regan. You can follow Southhold on Instagram at Southhold underscore farm underscore and underscore seller. And the Johnson City Outpost is called The Parlor. It's spelled the English way with a U. Follow them at The Parlor JCTX. Next up are demerits and gold stars. I like to recognize the good things in Texas wine, and today my gold star goes out to the town of Mason that recently hosted the Mason Arts and Wine Festival. I attended this festival on a warm and beautiful Saturday and was able to visit with lots of Texas wineries and see a ton of excitement around some new tasting rooms. I got to visit two wineries that were having their grand opening that day. Peter's Prairie Vineyard and Saba Winery or maybe it's Saba, not sure, we're excited to welcome visitors for the very first time. They both have really lovely tasting rooms and historic buildings that have been renovated, and they're definitely worth your time to go check out. I also dropped in on some of the best-known Texas wine names around Mason, like Brock Estes at Flygap Winery and Dan and Jeannie McLaughlin at Robert Clay Vineyards. Some of my favorite wineries from the area had come into Mason just for the day, like John Rivenberg of Kerrville Hills, Michael Bilger of Adega Vino, and Renee Mills of Rustic Spur Vineyards. There were around 13 wineries offering tastings either in their own Mason tasting room or at temporary booths set up for the festival. It's definitely worth your time to make a trip out to Mason and keep your eyes peeled for the next festival day. While I was out touring Mason, the Lubbock Chamber of Commerce was sponsoring Lubbock Uncorked, featuring over 25 wineries and plenty of other vendors, too. Adelphos Cellars won the People's Choice Award. So gold star to Spring Wine Festivals in Mason and Lubbock and to Adelphos Cellars. And now for the demerit. I was surprised and initially pleased to see a travel feature about Kerrville in the Napa Valley Register. The article is called A Spring Visit to Texas Hill Country. Road Trip Follows Guadalupe River in Kerr County by Dave Stoneberg. The author has family in Kerrville and mentions how it's a great place for retirees. He hits some of the high points in Kerrville, from the sculpture prayer gardens to the river. And he also mentioned taking day trips to the nearby towns of Ingram and Fredericksburg. But there was no evidence that Dave visited any wineries or tasted Texas wine. The article did speak highly of everyone's favorite grocer, H-E-B., But instead of any mentions of Texas wine at H-E-B, the author writes, The Kerrville store is massive, like many things in Texas, and its wine aisles contained fine wines from all over the world, including those from Napa Valley. On display was a Jeroboam of Silver Oak Cabernet Sauvignon in a pine box, and two premier Napa Valley wines from the 2015 and 17 vintages. H-E-B is apparently successful at obtaining these rare wines from the annual Napa Valley Vintners Auction. The author went on to say that HEB apparently paid $80,000 for 60 bottles of Schrader Cellars 2017 Oakville Cab Sauv from the Tokelon Vineyard, making each bottle worth more than $1,300. Hey, that's great, but please don't miss out on the Texas wines that are made just a few short miles away. I'm working on my late summer and fall podcast schedule. Who would you like to hear on the podcast? And you're welcome to nominate yourself. 
Get in touch by emailing me at texaswinepod at gmail.com, and I'm at texaswinepod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Let me be real for a sec. I set a goal this year to cover the cost of my podcasting equipment. You can read more about it by visiting thisistexaswine.com and clicking on the Support the Podcast tab. There you can buy me virtual Texas wine to help me achieve my goal. Thanks, y'all. Thanks to Texas Wine Lover website for promotional assistance. Visit txwinelover.com to help plan your next winery visit. I'll be back in two weeks with another episode. I'll be talking with Jen Beckman of Rerooted 210. Until then, cheers, y'all.